Hi, everybody. This is Pete Worrell from Bigelow, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the Positive Enterprise Value Podcast. For over 30 years, I've had the fun of meeting with thousands of seasoned, successful private business owners, a bunch of characters with great ideas who typically led niche businesses, and I've had that fun of working with hundreds of them. In this podcast, I interview some of the most high-performing entrepreneur owner-managers from both the for-profit and not-for-profit sector because we can learn a lot from their experiences. They typically are willing to talk to us a lot about their lives, how they became entrepreneurs, some of the ways that they learned along the way. Maybe there was a few trips or stumbles along the way, and ultimately some of the wisdoms, the breadcrumbs in the forest that they left behind them that we can learn from. Today, my... uh, guest is Dr. George Shapiro, MD. George is the Chief Medical Innovation Officer of Fountain Life. Fountain is a company that's been formed, I think, uh, maybe three years ago, where its mission is to revolutionize the current healthcare system. Actually, I would call it the sick care system by switching the primary focus from a sick care reactive system to a proactive and preventative healthcare system. All of the advancements that have been made in technology and AI uh, that allow us to detect illnesses earlier than ever before uh, so that we could have the possibility of living much longer, healthier lives are really interesting but take a long time to find their way to your general practitioner. That's my editorializing, not fountains. George Shapiro uh, had a traditional education and background in um, medicine He uh, went to the uh, New York Medical College where he received his MD. He um, had his undergraduate degree from the Albert Einstein College at the Yeshiva University. And he then became a fellow at Columbia University in the Cardiology Center. George, in my view, has kind of seen it all. He's seen people practice by focusing on the symptoms, which it seems like are mass popular culture and the sick care system especially is is uh, focused on. I mean, I, I'm sure you have the same stories that I do when you go to see a practitioner and really they address what symptoms you're having. And I think George would say, wow, the technology we have allows you to look at your health care pre-symptom. Why would you wait until the engine in your car seizes up until you go get it fixed? Why wouldn't you have a low oil indicator before and actually go get that fixed before it's seized up. In fact, George and I have laughed about that in a car and a boat or an aircraft, you know a heck of a lot more about what's going on than you do about your own body. So George um, is very, very skilled in this area and has a lot of scar tissue from the traditional medical system. I hope you'll have fun listening to him. He takes a couple of side jaunts um, to talk about what's going on in uh, the state of the art of uh, healthcare now and brings us back to um, what Fountain is offering. I expect this will be the first of um, several podcasts with George because I think we can uh, drill down into a couple of interesting topics that uh, you'll want to hear him talk about. So um, without further delay, uh, please uh, join me in listening to George Shapiro from Fountain Life. George, if you think of your life in chapters, what chapter is this? I can tell you what it's not. <laughs> okay, well, let's maybe maybe um, it's not the final. Think of, I can tell you it's not, it's, it's not the it's not the final chapter. Okay, good. So, so how many chapters have there been in your life so far? 
uh, there's been multiple chapters. <clears throat> uh, you know, I would say the 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 initial chapters were, if you if you think about, you know, growing up, the initial yep. chapters uh, was into uh, sports and athleticism. My my parents were all into sports, so my dad kind of pushed me into uh, a lot of hand racket sports. So I was I was playing paddle ball. Uh, down at Orchard Beach at age 10, believe it or not, and kept that going. So I, I was playing competitive uh, paddle ball uh, at age 15. And where did you grow up? In the Bronx. And were your parents uh, in the in the healthcare field? No, no. My dad, uh, my dad was a master plumber, and uh, my mom just took care of the house. I'm the oldest of six children, so she was busy. But uh, my dad was a hard worker, and I was working the summers with him, setting up, you know, all the plumbing trucks. <clears throat> he actually started with one and then went to 40. So I, I was learning how to work in the ditch because uh, it was really interesting. So your dad was, your dad was an entrepreneur. He started as a plumber and then became a, a, a huge plumbing business and then went to developing and then building. And taught us how to build. So I can actually, my brother built his own house. I can build a house from scratch. Is your dad still with us? Unfortunately, no. He he didn't listen to me. Uh, he developed prostate cancer. And I told him no radioactive seeds. And he put that in. And what I've learned in the last 30 years is uh, radioactive seeds is a death sentence. Uh, it's, you usually give that to people who can't get operated on when they're older, like 90, not when they're 60. So, so um, I asked you about the chapters in your life and you talked about growing up. So that's a chapter. What are some other chapters? Uh, competing in the national Olympic level in, in sports from tradition, you know, just neighborhood, neighborhood stickball, paddle ball to, uh, to actual tournaments. You know, when the round of 128 starting out on a Wednesday, going down to the semifinals and finals on the weekend in racquetball. And, and was that through high school? That was through high school till I was about 25. Uh, I oh. also, at the same time, was doing judo. So I went to uh, the Junior Olympics in judo. So I became oh, wow. a judo champion and a racket champion. And and um, where did you go to where did you go to school? Undergraduate school? Uh, local in in Westchester in Rockland County. And was that a good experience? It was a great experience. Uh, my mom was pushing me to become a physician. So it was, you know, most of my Sundays and Saturdays were, were not playing in the park. It was studying. She wouldn't let me come out of the room. She kept joking so about that. What do you think it, what do you think she saw in you, George, that made her feel that way? You know, I, I, I grew up, uh, I grew up memorizing and learning different languages. So I went to a, a, a Jewish yeshiva when I was younger mm -hmm. and I learned how to read Aramaic. And when I started reading Aramaic to her, she she kind of freaked out and said, uh-oh, something's going on here. So I was able to, uh, I can still read to this day Aramaic, which is one of the oldest and hardest languages, believe it or not. Wow. Okay, so so we're in chapter two or chapter three. Take me through a couple more. Uh, went to college. Uh, had a great experience in college. It was in upstate New York, uh, Oneonta. I... I uh, you know, it was it was kind of a uh, a school where they had a great science program, a pre med program, but it, it just wasn't the path for me for medical school. So I transferred to uh, California, and I went to La Jolla to UCSD, University of California, San Diego, 
Oh, I feel bad for you. You, you should have, because I had no money, and all my friends drove Ferraris, and I had a, a bus, take a bus to school. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great place. Uh, and then uh, from there, I applied to uh, medical school. Did you go directly to medical school from college? I I went to uh, uh, New York Medical College master's program because I wanted to publish some science. I was interested in science, so I worked in the laboratory. And I published about 25 papers before medical school. Wow. And what was your area of interest? Uh, physiology, cardiovascular physiology, how the heart works. I always was intrigued with the heart. So I, I, we did a lot of uh, experiments looking at arrhythm, cardiac arrhythmias, electrical abnormalities of the heart, and so on. And I had a great mentor. Uh, he, he actually... Uh, came from Boston and he did a lot of research. So he showed me how to publish scientific papers, which at the time, What's his name? Uh, Thomas Hintze, H-I-N-T-Z. Uh, and, you know, he, it, it, was a, it was just a great mentor. And then he became chairman of the department. But what he showed me was how to publish scientific papers. What I didn't know at the time was that was the game changer to get into, to get into um, a, a cardiology program. So I went to New York Medical College, uh, and then as I was going through, I still continued to do my, uh, you know, scientific publications. So my interview, I'll never forget this. It was with 20 physicians at Columbia, and it was it was the hardest program to get into in the city at that time. It was 1991. There was a, a room full of uh, clinical doctors who, who do clinical medicine, and another room full of physicians who were, you know, in the laboratory. Science, bedside, we call it bench to bedside. The bench doctors, the bedside doctors. And and I was I was telling them about my scientific experiments using words that they didn't know. And when you know more than the interviewers on a, on a subject, it blew them out of the water. And they asked me, do you want to go out there and, and work in private practice? I said, no, I want to continue my research. That's all they needed to hear. Because that's what... <laughs> programs. So anyway, there was a thousand applicants for four spots and I was one of the applicants. So that chapter was uh, a, must have been a great celebration, right? You, you not only completed undergraduate school, then you went to this other program where you followed your passion and scientifically topically in the domain and publishing papers about that. And then much to your mother's gratification, you got into medical school. Oh, it wasn't medical school was great, but getting into Columbia College of yeah. Physicians and Surgeons was uh, most of the people there are from you know Ivy League schools, Harvard, yeah. Yale, Princeton. <clears throat> it was it was so uh, so I got in into that program, which was which was uh, for me it was it was a game changer in my life, changed my whole life. And and can you say more about that? It changed your whole life because. It changed the activities that you worked on or it changed the relationships that you had or, or what was it? I needed to be at the hospital at 5.30 a.m. on a Monday and I wouldn't come home till Thursday. <laughs> it was one of the most intense programs that anyone. And at, at the time when I was in when I was going through my training right before Columbia, it was the same thing in medical school and residency. I went to Albert Einstein uh, doing internal medicine. What was interesting about that was it was the last year before a commission called the Bell Commission. I don't know if you remember the Bell Commission, but the Bell 
Bertram Bell was a physician, a doctor in, in Albert Einstein. And he saw the way the interns were getting treated. And he said, we have to change this because I would, I would, I would come to the hospital on a Monday morning, believe it or not, work all day. And I'd be on call the night that night that the hospital admissions in the 1980s, the upper eighties was HIV disease and alcoholic hemorrhaging disease. So we, we wouldn't have just two or three admissions. We'd have 17 admissions to the hospital. So what I'd have to do a full examination, full history and physical presented to the attending, but not only do that, I would have to do all what we call scut work. Yeah. I would have to do the EKG, the blood test, the urine test, the pulmonary function test, the everything that we had no, we had no ancillary staff to help us. And the next day, after being up the whole night, I'd have to present 17 cases to the attending physician and the rest of the doctors with no sleep and work the whole next day doing the workup on those patients. Right. Go home Tuesday night, exhausted, but come back again Wednesday morning to start it again. Yes. And that was the Bell Commission. Wasn't that the commission remind me where they said interns or residents can't work more than 80 hours a week? No, can't work more than a shift of, of 12 hours. Okay, more than a shift of twelve hours, but I th- I thought it was like they also had a a, a weekly total. Okay, it was, it was, yeah. So that uh, the last year, so my after my internship year, they said Bell Commission. So now they developed something called Night Float. So I would stop admitting cases at eleven p.m. at night, and then from eleven p.m. to seven a.m., a Night Float doctor would see the patients. I would sleep, yeah. but I'd still be on call. Then he'd present me all those cases in the morning, and I'd still have to present. Uh, so- so do you feel like when I hear this, and as you know, being married to Kareen, a physician who has some war stories a little bit like this in her early days, do you feel that that crucible, that that pressure and that stress, it undoubtedly had some negative aspects. Did it have any positive aspects for you? Oh, tremendous positive aspects. It was like it was like the Marines in the hospital. Yeah, it was, <laughs> right. It was, it was boot camp on steroids. Yeah, because if we make a mistake, someone dies. Just like if someone makes a mistake in the war field, someone dies. Right. It, it was it was intense. Uh, even though I didn't like it, I became a, a machine. Yeah, and you don't even you don't even have to think about it. You can just go there and resuscitate a patient at three in the morning with four seconds of you know, uh, in four seconds. It's, it's just, it, it, I mean, it's it's. It was a great experience for me. I would not recommend it to anybody. <laughs> so, so, um, so we got the growing up chapter. We got the chapter of going to schools and colleges, and then medical school. What comes next? The, the one thing I want to talk about that one of the things in that chapter that's really interesting is it wasn't enough that I was working. We did something called moonlighting because it was because we weren't making any money as an intern and a resident. They were paying us $35,000 a year doing all this work. Yes. So moonlighting was a way that we can actually make some money. So on the weekends, I'd work in an emergency room from 8 p.m. from to to 8 a.m. Saturday and Sunday nights after working all week <laughs> in the ER. So when you're in the ER, you're there alone, you're the only doctor and there's a few nurses. But you take care of everything, gunshot wounds, hip fractures, uh, you know, respiratory arrest, whatever it is. And then I had another moonlighting job in, in, the, in Columbia in their emergency room. 
So I was working in four different ERs and then urgent care centers. So I had five different jobs just to make ends meet because we, because at that time I got married and I had three children uh, before I was finished medical school, which was a mistake, oh. which, which uh, you, I probably shouldn't have done. Uh, but it was a lot of work between taking care of family, providing for the family and, and, and working five different jobs. Did, was that, uh, did you find that you were older and more mature and you had these family concerns compared to the other people that you were working with or went to medical school with? Uh, you know, so it was half and half. A lot of people also had relationships as well. And, and at that time, the parents were like, get kids, get kids, get kids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of them got divorced. Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, so take me to professionally then. You're, you're out of medical school. You're out of internship. You're out of residency. What's the next chapter? The next chapter was getting into, into uh, my cardiology fellowship at Columbia. Uh, so, uh, after I finished that program, that was an intense program. That was, I was on the heart transplant team taking care of heart failure. Uh, I was, we were really making a difference and we were using a lot of the newer mechanical devices to, to bridge the heart, to transplant. So when, when it turns out there were about 500,000 admissions a year to a hospital for heart failure. So the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association wanted to find out why so many people are getting heart failure. And this was back in the 90s. Yes. Turns out they, they did a study, a, a, a prospective study, a retrospective study, looked back and found out this was untreated hypertension. Patients were not going to see their doctor to check their blood pressures. And they had high blood pressures, which became the silent killer. They didn't know they had high pressure. It turns out blood pressure... If you think of an ice skating rink, how smooth that is, when your pressure's high, the inside of your blood vessel, that's an ice skating rink, when it's healthy, becomes like lasagna. It becomes all gritty and everything sticks to it. Hypertension is the number one killer that leads to coronary atherosclerosis or plaque or hardening of the arteries. So all these people were undiagnosed with heart failure. So you have two phases, compensation, the heart compensates and gets thickened. And then you have a decompensation phase and it gets weak and dilated. So think of a staircase going down a staircase. It goes, you go down, then it flattens out a little bit. Then it goes down and it flattens out. That whole process takes about 30 years and is called ventricular remodeling. The ventricle, the left ventricle is what pumps the blood out. It gets thick or compensated, then it gets thin or decompensated. When it's thin, it's like a big bag and it can't move and squeeze. And that's heart failure. Before we didn't have medications, we were just trying new medications. So the medications we were trying, a lot of people were getting uh, arrhythmias and, and, and dying. So back in the 80s and 90s, when all these new drugs came out for arrhythmias, everything's changed in the early 2000s when now we have defibrillators. We have new medicines that take the heart from 10% to 30%. And all this was going on when we had what's called LVADS, left ventricular assist device, a mechanical heart for a bridge to transplant. And I remember one story that was, that was amazing when I was on the transplant team. My, my wife came to me and said, do me a favor. Can you talk to my dad, his, his, his cousin, Freddie from Westport, Connecticut, uh, is, is really sick. 
So I went to him and, and, and turns out this gentleman was 76 years. He was 76 when he had his first heart attack. I saw him when he was in the 80s, but his heart was weak. It was 10%. He went to Yale Transplant Center and they told him to go home. There's nothing they can do. And, and he, he loved boating. And, I, and I, I, he was sitting in back of his boat, couldn't go on the boat because his legs were like elephant legs, edema, fluid in the legs. He couldn't breathe. He couldn't even lift up his hand. There's, there's four stages when you have heart failure. Stage one is when you just have a high blood pressure. Stage two is you have high blood pressure with what we call structural heart disease. Your EKG or, or echo is abnormal. Stage three is you get little symptoms. You can't breathe a little bit. When you go to your car, you get short of breath. Stage four, you lift up your hand and you get short of breath. So he had what's called stage four, or back then it was called class four congestive heart failure. Turns out he was he was 60, 65 years old. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. He was 70 years old. He was 70. And the cutoff, the cutoff for a heart transplant was 65. Oh, yeah. So I said, uh, so there's a committee called UNOS, U-N-O-S, and they decide who gets heart transplants. So I went to the committee and I said, listen, we, I, we have a gentleman who's, who's 70 years old. He missed the cutoff, but he, but he really wants to live. Why don't we change the criteria uh, for people to get heart transplants? Instead of 65, make it 70 for hearts that aren't perfect hearts. In other words, if you, you know, we, when we look at a heart, we want to make sure that it's, it's a good heart. So some hearts, uh, most of the heart transplants, believe it or not, back then came from motorcycle riders without helmets and they had right. brain death. So there were, unfortunately, there were, there were three kids in a car. Well, no, I need, let me get, let me get to the other, to the beginning of that story. So regarding is regarding this, I said, listen, if there's hearts that are not perfect, in other words, they're, they're you know, the person, the person who was, uh, willing to be a donor was brain dead, but he didn't have oxygen, good oxygen. So the heart wasn't the perfect heart to use the certain criteria we use for the perfect heart to transplant it. Why don't we use those hearts for the older guy, not the younger guy? Cause you're going to, th- you're going you're to throw it out anyway. So, so I, 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 they agreed to increase the, the heart transplant to age 70. So oh. we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. And then it was Christmas Eve on, uh, in a, in a, uh, it was Christmas Eve. He got a phone call and there was a heart for him. Unfortunately, three, three kids were in a car in Philadelphia on the turnpike and they got in a car accident. One of the kids who was 18 uh, crushed his head on the windshield and, he, and, he, and he, they couldn't get him out quick enough. So the heart, by the time they resuscitated him, it was too late. So the heart had less oxygen. So they called it a, a, a weak heart. So they said, let's give it to the older guy because we can't use it anyway. So... He got a phone call. They got a heart. He went down to Columbia, got the heart, and he lived another uh, 10 years to that day. And his legs were normal. He went boating. He traveled the world. You know, that was an incredible story for me. So, so um, you know, most of our listeners are entrepreneur business owners, and there's some of them have expert advisors who listen to this as well. And I think just to remind every, us all that I believe it's true, George, that today uh, the single largest cause of fatalities in North America is heart disease, right? Followed by cancer. Correct. Or is it the other way around? No. Uh, so today it's heart disease followed by cancer. Six years from now, it's going to be COPD. 
That's going to take over number one cause of death. Why, and why, why do you say that? Because there's there's new therapies to diagnose heart disease and cancer early. We can we can predict a cardiac event now years before, maybe up to ten years before you're going to have an event. Based so, so on the new there's technology. a lot of people listening. So I think there's a lot of people listening who think, wow, I go to my primary care practitioner and I don't hear what George is saying. Help help us understand why you're saying what you're saying. So the way we used to look at heart disease uh, was when someone would come to the office and say, Doc, I have chest pain. Yeah. And they're, and they're you know, 60 and 70 years old. We put them through the testing and then they wind up getting a bypass or a stent. That's one group. Another group presents to the morgue at age 40. Their first event is their last event. So we call those acute coronary syndromes. So you have sudden cardiac death in 40 and 50, and then you have the chronic disease later. So there was a study done in 1953 that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and it looked at Korean War uh, veterans age 22. 77% at autopsy already had coronary disease at age 22. 77% of the 22-year-olds already had some evidence of coronary heart disease. Correct. So It doesn't seem possible. It does. When does it start? It actually starts at age five in certain patients who have a genetic predisposition. Those are the people who die in their 40s. If you're genetically predetermined to have a heart attack, 50% of the time, your first event is your last event. So the way we looked at this was risk factors. Do you have high blood pressure? Do you have diabetes? Do you have a family history of heart disease? Do you smoke? These are all the risk factors. That's what we use. Then we went to cholesterol. Do you have high cholesterol? Then we went to new markers of disease, uh, your particle size. This doesn't tell us anything. You know, you know, we can't visualize or see what's inside your vessels, but we know it starts at a young age. So there's a new test called the blood biomarker test. There's like nine different biomarkers that we can do between age 20 and 40. We call that the latent period where things are growing, but we don't see it. At age 40, we can now do a test using artificial intelligence that looks at the coronary artery inside. Remember the Jetsons, like you're a robot going through the body? (laughs) Yeah. This is what this test does. Artificial intelligence means it's a computer. A computer can look at your coronary arteries in different directions. Uh, and, And when you see in different directions, you can tell what type of plaque you have. It could be hard plaque or soft plaque, and it's and it's measured by the amount of calcium in the plaque. So if you have a low calcium plaque, that's a soft, dangerous plaque, and it's colored red or yellow or blue. Blue is a hard, stable plaque. We can now visualize plaque, type of plaque. So if I did a test on you uh, between 20 and 40, if you had a risk, if you had family history, and it, and that came out high, I would do this new test on you using artificial intelligence. This just started by a cardiologist named James Min from Cornell, who developed this about four years ago. Uh, and it's taken this long. Still, many doctors don't understand the new technology. But in seven minutes, I can look at your coronary arteries and tell you, if you have a vulnerable plaque, which is a soft plaque, it's like a volcano about to rupture. I can now adjust your program and give you medications to reduce that plaque and make it stable or blue color, so you won't have a, coronary, a, a cardiac event. We can now intervene before you get the heart attack. So when can we start predicting this? At age 20. Why wait? So, 
I mean, I'm guessing this means that there that at some point, this means that cardiac events stop becoming the highest cause of fatalities. Correct, because we can now early detect cardiac events with new technologies. Yeah. Years before, 20 years before. I'll give you an example. So, we saw a patient, 55-year-old CEO of a major uh, international and national company. He went to his doctor. His doctor said he had normal coronary arteries. He's doing fine. He came to us in Fountain Life, and we saw him. And we did this new artificial intelligence heart test. And he had severe coronary disease in one vessel, 99% blocked, didn't even know it, and, and changed his life. He would have been a statistic. So, so um, in the ch- going back to my questions about chapters, as you came out of medical school and fellowship and practiced, this is my vocabulary, not yours. So, con- so correct me if, if you need to. It seems to me that you were in the practice of sick care at that time. You, you people, you mentioned people present to you, you know, uh, really what their symptoms were. Doc, I got heart pain or wh- whatever, whatever. Uh, when did you? realized that your real love was healthcare, not sick care? So I, I, I can answer that question. Uh, but I wanted to finish this, the, the previous question, if you don't mind. Okay. Yeah, sure, sure. So, so heart disease, we, we had this new technology called artificial intelligence evaluation. Cancer is a new blood test to detect cancer. What's that called? So that's called the Grail Gallery Test. And, and that is an interesting story of how that happened. Uh, we used to look at uh, cancers uh, in a different way. And we treat cancers in a different way. In the old days, we'd kill all your cells with chemotherapy. Now we can target it using newer immune drugs that, that's, that can go right after the cancer and pinpoint the cancer. That's treating it. What about diagnosing it? By the time we diagnose it, the people who really have cancer have stage four cancer. And the chance of survival is 5%. And, and just to add on here, and I think you're saying that because by the time you diagnose it is by the time symptoms show up. Correct. Sym- yes. Would, symptoms occur. Uh, yeah. And then by the time we look, it'd be stage four cancer, 5% survival. Right. What happens if we can evaluate cancer or find, not evaluate, find cancer in stage one? The survival rate's up to almost 95%. But how do you do that if there's no symptom? So there's a blood test that can be done. And and the blood test is called the GRAIL test. And this changed the way doctors can early diagnose cancer, just like they can early diagnose heart disease. This started by uh, a CEO of a company. His wife was complaining of fatigue. And she went to four different doctors. They couldn't find out what she had, but she had a colon uh, polyp. So they went in there to remove it. And when they opened her up to, to go take out the polyp, they found out she had stage four colon cancer. She spent the next 18 months in the hospital and $3 million on chemotherapy and passed away at age 47. Her husband was determined to find a cure for cancer early to figure this out. So he, he, he got some funding and developed this company called uh, Grail. And it started out by looking at DNA abnormalities in, in, in babies of expectant mothers. So a mother would be pregnant and instead of doing amniocentesis where they put a needle into the amniotic fluid, that's 1% risk of death to the, to the fetus. They started doing fetal DNA blood test in the mother to check for fetal DNA abnormalities. And it turns out that 
about 18 mothers out of about a few hundred had this weird fragment in the DNA that the doctors couldn't figure out what it was. It wasn't maternal DNA, which is the mother's. It wasn't fetal DNA, which is the fetus. It was something different. So they sent this to geneticists all around the, the country, and it turns out it was cancer. It was an abnormal fragment of DNA that cancer made years before you get the cancer. And that's how they eventually developed this test called GRAIL that's excellent for certain cancers. It's not good for other cancers, but it's good for most cancers. The, the other cancers that it's not good for, we combine with the whole body MRI, uh, looking with artificial intelligence, we combine those. But to answer your question, heart disease, number one, we, we now have a way to look at it early. Cancer, we now have a way to look at it early. So what's next? Dementia. So now we have ways to look at dementia early and fix it and go from severe dementia to moderate or mild or moderate to mild dementia with new techniques. Okay. So now I want to go back to my question because you're one of the things I appreciate about you among many things, but one of the things is that you have a complete mastery of the theory, but you're also, I find to be very pragmatic in the application of state of the art theory. So when did you realize that you really were passionately driven to go from sick care to health care? So well, I was working at, in Columbia on the heart transplant and heart failure service uh, 80 hours a week, even though it was a bell commission, I was still working eight hours a week. I started to get tired. I'd wake up in the morning and my joints would hurt. I was getting belly fat and fatigue. And, and when I told you before, I was a, a, an athlete when I was younger, I couldn't understand why I was getting old at age 45. So I went to investigate aging and I searched the country for the best aging clinics. And I found one clinic in Vegas called Cenogenics. Cenogenics was uh, based on evaluating the patient by looking at their, their metabolism and their hormone status. And as we age, our hormone declines and our metabolism declines. And no matter how much we exercise or how good we eat, we lose, we lose that muscle mass called sarcopenia. We lose that energy and we get fatigued and then we gain weight. So I, I, in 2005, I went to investigate this program and I became a patient. And within two weeks, I felt more energy you could ever imagine. It was night and day. Within six months, my body fat went from 44% to 14%. Wow. I had a washboard abdomen again. I felt great. I was king of the mountain. But not only that, I had drive, motivation. I was sharp, uh, multitasking. I knew, and I excelled in business. I became the CEO of three different companies. And what, what, what is it about the Cenogetics experience that uh, inspired that in you? Uh, I had my hormones optimized. My, my, my hormones were very low, uh, which is normal with aging. And I, and I brought them up to the top one-third of normal. Uh, and that changed everything. So about eight years after that, they, they wanted to expand out of Vegas into New York. And they said, listen, you're, you're, you saw a great response with this program. Would you want to be one of our doctors? So I became the president of Cenogenics in New York City, and we had an office in the in Wall Street in New York, uh, and I took care of patients from all over uh, the world. Um, some of the people who are in business now were my patients, uh, and I learned how to be a concierge doctor. So I was doing, I, I said, you know, it's, for me, doing sick care on Tuesday and Wednesday 
doing this well care, preventing problems Monday, you know, the other three days of the week. So, so I started uh, doing what's called a hybrid practice, well care, sick care, and eventually transitioned all to well care because I found out as I'm treating these patients, after six months, I basically cured hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, fatigue, uh, ED issues, brain fog. They, they lost weight. They had better muscle mass. They had no more joint aches. And it was, for me, it, it, it was enlightening. I was helping people and they would tell their friends and I would help their friends. And before you know it, I was taking care of celebrities, prime ministers, presidents, CEOs. And I was working less hours and and be able, and I was able to spend more time with, with uh, the, the clients. We, yes. Our initial visit was two hours. In my cardiology practice, we were seeing 50 people a day, five minutes. Wow. Um, and yeah, I, I get it. Yeah. You, you know, I mean, your wife's a physician. She probably knows, you know, told you these stories. But I would see one patient a day in the Senegenics office. Yes. Compared to 50 a day. And, and also in those one patient a day or how many ever small number of patients it was, you also make a huge positive impact on those people's lives. Not only that, but their relationships got better because their, their wives came in and it was a couple. And, the, and they both, you know, if you think about if you, if you ever took a walk to, to Disney World or some of these big uh, you know, amusement parks and look around and you see people, what do you see? Obesity. Yeah, everywhere. Still today. Uh, yeah. we, we did a retreat recently and I cannot believe how many people were overweight and the people who were overweight were sitting, eating fast foods. People just don't know how to eat. So one of the things we did was we taught them how to eat, taught them how to exercise and optimize their hormones. That's a huge impact worldwide. So my, so my goal now would be to, to expand this and democratize this type of, of, of medicine, uh, well care. We can prevent disease. Other doctors looked at me as like, are you crazy? What are you doing? You're a doctor. You're supposed to take care of the sick. You're supposed to heal the sick. You're not supposed to take care of the well and keep them well. How are we going to stay in business? <laughs> so so um, how did you find your way to Fountain? So some of the, the so Tony Robbins was one of my patients, believe it or not, in, in New York. And Peter and, and Bob Herrera, uh, the three partners. So they came to me and Dr. Bill Cap, uh, who looked at, he, he was modeling a center that was done in La Jolla called Lumen Longevity Institute in Naples called Longevity Performance Centers. And, and Dr. Cap was doing lectures for me at <clears throat> one of the conferences I run. We became good friends and he said, listen, let's start this wellness performance center since you've done wellness. And Dr. Cap was one of my patients as well in Senegenics, believe it or not. So we were all uh, together. So they said, let's just join because they had the, you know, they, the, the clinical practices we had and they didn't have any practices, uh, Peter, Tony and, and Bill. So we formed the company Fountain Life uh, with s- seven of us, three from their side, three from our side. And it was a platform to give our members an easy way to look at this new technology. Because if you looked at what happens net before, it was old medicine, and it took 17 years for the for the general public to understand this new technology. Now it's taken one year. Everything's moving fast because of digital uh, and the web and the internet. So if you went to a conference, and that's where I met you, 
It's five days of all these new innovations. You get confused. What do I do? What tests do I do? Everyone's saying, take this supplement, take that supplement. How do I know it's going to work on me? So the goal of Fountain Life was to put everything on a nice table with, with, with things that work and have been vetted. So we developed an advisory board of, of world-renowned experts in their fields of heart, brain, cancer. And, and I'm uh, the chief medical innovation officer who finds these new innovations and brings them to the table, along with my other partners, mostly Peter and Bill. And, and we, we bring these to the table and find, you know, it, it makes it easier for, for the member or the client or the patient because we, we already looked at it and they listened to us. So, so I think one of the things that um, people who listen to this podcast uh, will uh, feel very deeply, George, is that uh, many of us who are seasoned, successful entrepreneurs have been had sustained success for a really long time. And uh, we've had a lot of achievement, but there's, you know, there's a mind-body connection and uh, you, you can get fatigued, not just mentally fatigued, but you, you don't have to be running marathons all the time where you can, you, as you pointed out the way you felt before you went to Cenogenics, you can, you can feel physically fatigued. And um, I, uh, as listeners know from the introduction, I'm an early adopter and patient at Fountain Life and Corrine is also. Um, could you just give us a capsule of, for people like me or like you who are entrepreneurs, who are hearing this and intrigued by it, what does Fountain Life offer to them as uh, successful um, people who run successful enterprises? What, what does it involve to start off with? For, for any company, I, I think the best, the best approach for, for someone like yourself just starting would be, okay, I'll come in and I'll get what's called a full health upload. We'll take you from the head to toe doing all these new technologies to, to evaluate you and find disease early so we can treat it. One of the good things about Fountain Life is we just don't diagnose with these new technologies. We treat. It's very important. There's a lot of companies out there that would diagnose and they give you the paper and say, here, take this to your doctor. Your doctor doesn't know what to do with these because he's a traditional medical doctor. He doesn't understand some of the new technologies. But if we have new technology that can reverse and treat, such as cellular therapy, stem cells. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about that. Exosomes or, or apheresis, filtering out your yeah. blood, uh, which I just went through. But, but just to, to answer this, diagnose yeah. and treat is, is, is something that we do with some of the newer innovations. And it's so so if I'm a listener, am I hearing you say that actually Fountain replaces my primary care practitioner? I wouldn't say that. You you, you need a good primary care practitioner to 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 take care of you, to do some of the general uh medical things. And you know, we're we're doing more of uh newer innovative technologies to early diagnose it and we can recommend some therapies. Uh you know, for well care, we're focused on the well care. Your your primary practitioner is focused on sick care. So if you have right. a cold, you'll see your practitioner. Now, some of the people who I take care of in in a, the premier program called the Edge program, I become their primary practitioner, and and right. I take care of some of those things. But but usually, uh, we recommend stick with your primary practitioner. Eventually, that's going to change because the we're trying to bring Fountain into all 
the doctors and teach doctors this is the wave of the future, well care, not sick care. If you, I believe there's going to be less primary practitioners out there and less hospitals out there because disease is not going to start at age 40 or 50. It might start at age 90. So I, I think that's probably a super controversial statement that you just made for most listeners, because while I, uh, I emphatically agree with it, I think a lot of people uh, wouldn't know about what you're, what you're describing in terms of intervening before uh, symptoms until maybe this podcast. So, um, so let's talk about a couple of the new uh, areas, uh, new state-of-the-art areas like stem cell or epheresis. I think you've just come back from uh, investigating a new stem cell clinic. Tell us about that. So what's really interesting with the stem cells, it's, it's controversial. Stem cells are only approved in the United States under specific uh, FDA clinical trials. These trials take a long time, years and years and years. So a lot of people want the stem cell because the science has shown that the more stem cells you have, the younger you are and, and the less frailty is occurring. So, so people go outside to the U S. So I went to a, a, a clinic called the regenerative medical Institute in Costa Rica. And one of the, one of the things I noticed out there was the, the stem cells there are, are, uh, properly manufactured and they're, they're alive. So when we're born, we have a lot of stem cells. As we age, we have less stem cells. It's called stem cell exhaustion. So you and I are in our 60s. We have fewer stem cells than people in their 20s? Correct. And, and as we age, we lose stem cells. We, you know, Each year, we lose a certain portion, maybe 10% of our stem cell population. And, and why does that matter? What, it, look at the transition of someone who looks like 20 years old, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. You see an aging. In, you mean in terms of their physical appearance, their skin and so on? Outside and inside. We okay. age. Our organs age. Our skin ages. Our body ages. Bone, muscle, everything. One of the uh, new innovations that started at Harvard, actually, uh, by a Dr. Gian Papa, was to prevent what's called stem cell exhaustion. In other words, Present, prevent your reduction of stem cells. How do we do that? We can give you back your own stem cells. So you, you would go to this facility in Costa Rica and what they do is a cell collection. They collect your stem cells by, by uh, it's like a dialysis machine. It filters mm-hmm. out your blood and it collects your cells. It gets spun down. It takes about two or three hours. It's called a, a, you know, a cell collection. So I did that. So I lied in the, in the, sat in a chair, watched a great movie, uh, <laughs> two big IVs in my hand, and they got 100 vials of 200 million stem cells, each vial. Wow. And they put it into what's called a, a, a flow cytometer to look for viability, and 80% of those stem cells were alive. Now, there were stem cells at my current age of 62. They weren't placental or umbilical cord stem cells, but those stem cells were my own stem cells. How I look at age 62, how, you know, I mean, I can't be 20 anymore, but I can stay 62 for a long time. So they collected my stem cells, they made sure they were viable, and now they freeze them. And then twice a year, 
I'm going to go back down and I'm going to get my own stem cells infused back in. So did you have some stem cells infused back into you while you were there? I did. So the stem cells that I got, mine, my own, were yeah. of two stem cell lines. We call that hemato, hematopoietic stem cells and endothelial stem cells. The stem cells that they gave me were umbilical cord stem cells. In addition to collecting my own, I went a, I, a second day, I went to get an infusion of umbilical cord stem cells. So those are 39-week-old stem cells. Correct. Exactly. Not, so, not so, 62-year-old stem cells. So are, they're, they're, are they more vigorous? They're called mesenchymal stem cells. And they have, they have so when, when we look at the amniotic fluid in the placenta that surrounds the growing fetus, they, they, they accumulate all these growth factors. So the growing, the placenta starts off really small, it gets really big while the baby is small. And it protects the baby from everything, cancer, viruses. It's a very powerful cell. We're able to harness those cells and infuse them back into us. So that cell line is called mesenchymal stem cells. My own stem cells were uh, two other cell lines, endothelial, hematopoietic. It gets confusing with the, with the names, but three different stem cell lines. So I received umbilical cord and IV infusion of those stem cells, which were young stem cells. And, and so um, that was a couple of days. That was a couple of days ago. Yesterday. Okay. And so when you think about the next six months, what effects would you expect to be able to, to, to detect in yourself, if any? From so I, had, I had umbilical cord stem cells already about six months ago. Okay. And I noticed my hair got thicker. My skin got healthier. My nails got harder. Stem cells start, start fixing high turnover, uh, sites in your body, like skin, hair, mucous membranes, energy increases, bone increases, muscle increases. Uh, you're, you're, you, you feel, you feel better, less pain, less aches. It starts to regenerate. The whole thing about stem cells is to regenerate. So we can regenerate tissue if we put the stem cell in a joint. So that was the, uh, another I was there for three days and I had three different procedures. So the first was cell collection. And every six months I plan to go back to, to regenerate, to, to get an, uh, an infusion of my own cells. Yes. The umbilical cells. Uh, also, I'm going to get an infusion once a year, the young cells. I, I then did a whole body, what we call musculoskeletal ultrasound. So they did a sonogram of my shoulders, my knees, my hips, and you, it's like an MRI at the bedside. It's actually looking at the, the the ligaments, the tendons. So since I played all that racquetball and paddleball and all my joints, I started, you know, I had definitely ep- evidence of arthritis in some of the joints. Some of the joints sure. were, were danger, were torn. They were still in good shape, but the, the physician there uh, gave me 33 different injections of of stem cells small amounts in each of the joints knee ankles shoulders so it's like a whole body makeover of stem cells in the joints i see so the trick is if you go to some places they inject high amounts of those stem cells and it creates a cytokine release syndrome where you have pain you don't want to inject that high amount you don't need it you inject smaller amounts so i had i had 100 million 
was in the IV infusion, but in the joints, I had 600,000. Uh-huh. So I had 33 injections of, of four to 600,000 stem cells in shoulders, knees, and hips, ankles. So now are you monitoring your physical uh, over the next six months of how that affects you? So usually in the first week, you have uh, an anti-inflammatory uh, reduction in, in swelling and pain. Uh, but in the next three to six months, you you start to feel a lot better. So I already had uh, the brain of a stem cell called the exosome, which which communicates with other cells. We can go over that in a minute in my, in my shoulders, and I and I fix my rotator cuff tears. The stem cells keep turning over. The exosomes are a one and done. Exosomes are fantastic. Uh, exosomes contain microRNA. If we looked at a joint in your knee for arthritis. And we looked at microRNA number 26. It's downregulated. If I took out your own blood and gave it back in you after it was filtered and concentrated with this microRNA 26A, I can rejuvenate your knee and regenerate the tissue. And that's been shown to, to work. So now instead of getting surgery of your knee or hip, 10 years before you need a hip replacement, I can start injecting your, your you know, the team can start injecting your knee or your hip to prevent you from getting replacements. So what happens when we get older? It's, it's, we lose muscle, we lose bone, we get frail. So besides fixing the, the diseases that can occur from, from being overweight, like hypertension, diabetes, atherosclerosis, we can now fit, we can now treat, we can treat by repairing muscle, bone, tendons, and joints. But there's one other thing we didn't speak about. It's the brain, the brain journey. So in our 40s and 50s, we get heart attacks. In our 60s, we get cancers. In our 70s, we get dementia. We're now finding out that dementia is a result of an inflammation over the covering of the brain. So if you think of your, your brain protector, it's called the microglia. And you, you've been to conferences with me. The microglia is like mental floss. When we sleep, it's our housekeeper of our brain, of our body. It cleans our brain. We wake up refreshed. When we get older, the microglia start attacking us, resulting in inflammation. And that's why we have brain fog. And we can't memorize or we can't, we can't find out where our keys are. What's the name of my friend here? You just forget things. There's a doctor I'm actually meeting this weekend, Shelly Jordan from California, who's developed a technique called focused ultrasound of the brain to reduce dementia. After you get uh, an IV infusion of what we call these exosomes, and it pulls like a magnet, the exosomes, right into the brain tissue. The exosomes are small particles, and they're inside the stem cell. So if we can give you an exosome in your blood, it's a clear fluid, and it goes into the brain to reduce inflammation, we can prevent severe dementia or reduce severe dementia to, mo- to moderate dementia or moderate to mild we believe dementia is an accumulation of it's it's Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. It's different. It's different groups of our brain getting attacked. Right. But now we can measure if you have, as an example, less glutathione in a portion of your brain, a reduced glutathione amount. We can measure white matter lesions in your brain that we can see uh, with artificial intelligence mapping. And if you have them, why? Do you have Lyme disease of the brain? Do you have abnormal plaque in your brain? Do you have something called alpha seniculin in your brain? These are all different things that that we can find out and treat now and reduce dementia or prevent dementia 
or at least tell you if you're going to have dementia. So by doing this focused ultrasound of the brain, we can now say, listen, you're having some issues. You have low levels of certain uh, uh, mediators in your brain, and we can start you on therapy now to fix that using these newer cell therapies and reduce dementia. So you've kind of described um, cardiac, cancer, uh, neurological dementia so far as being... And frailty. Not and frailty. Okay, and frailty. Not as being individual... This is, again, my, my vocabulary. Not as being individual diseases, but you're almost describing them as being a function of aging. That's correct. And one of the things that we also do is a, is a, a genomic test to look at your genome. The, the genome was founded by Craig Venter in the 1980s. He, he, he probably was the win a Nobel Prize for this. But now that we know your genome, we can predict, okay, you don't have the heart attack gene, MEF2-alpha. You have the Alzheimer's gene, APOE. So let's focus in on the brain journey. So I'll talk to you and you'll tell me, you know, I've been forgetting things. I feel like I have brain fog. I'm not as sharp as I used to be. We'd put you through our health upload and I'd, I'd look at your cardiac system and that's good. We do the cancer workup. That's good. Now we're going to focus in on your brain journey or your frailty journey. Make sure your muscle, you're not losing muscle. Make sure your bone is strong and make sure your brain is strong. So everyone's different. This is called personalized medicine. It's not a one size fits all. As part of our evaluation, we find out what are your goals. Now, some people will tell me, I have a family history of Alzheimer's disease. My mother had it. My father had it. I have the APOE gene. I don't want to get Alzheimer's. I have no heart disease, and my heart evaluation is normal. Let's focus in on the brain. Personalized medicine. So now we have four or five therapies we can do to make sure you don't get or reduce the fact that you're going to get a dementia and how to plan on it and, and do new therapies now like infusions of these cell therapies, new lasers, new ultrasound techniques, apheresis, filtering out your blood. So one of the things that, that I, I didn't mention is I had uh, plasma apheresis also. I'd like to hear about that. So I, I again, had a machine that looked like dialysis. I got... And this is, this is in the same, uh, same facility? Lo- in Same location. Okay. So I have a gene called hypertriglyceridemia. I can't metabolize triglycerides. I'm missing the gene that does that. So when I have, if I have a piece of pizza or sugar, my trigs go really high. So uh, my, my trigs were really high before this test. It was 900, which is unthinkable because uh, I had some homemade pizza the day before. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I, I went we all do that show you the time. this. You can't even believe it. But uh, I filtered out my blood and it took out toxins for like COVID, the long hauler syndrome that we're seeing now after COVID, uh, interleukin-6 and TNF-alpha, things that are our bodies, Army, Navy, and Air Force that we, that we use to, to prevent disease. I filtered a lot of these impurities out, but I also filtered out lipids. So the bag was this big full of all these things that shouldn't be in my body. So my LDL cholesterol went down to 60. My total Has it ever been that low? No. My total cholesterol went down to 90. Triglycerides went down to, to 80 from 900. So I filtered out all this and I felt 
incredible. I mean, so it's a, it's, it, when we get older, our cells get older and that's called senescent cells. Yeah. So, so this was a whole three days for me of an evaluation of, of a life-changing event at age 62 to put me on a, the right track because I've been healthy my whole life up until now, but, but I don't want to get older. I want to stay this age as long as I can. So when I'm 130, I won't be 130. I'd be 62. So, so I get that, but um, help us uh, uh, draw the conclusion about, so you had the plasma epheresis and it filtered out all the bad stuff. Got it. And presumably though, that bad stuff will continue to creep up in your blood unless you change your behavior, your lifestyle. Correct. So I'm waiting for a couple of things. I'm waiting for CRISPR to come out, which is a gene editing software to fix my triglyceride gene. But in the meantime, I have to really strictly watch what I eat. So I now have a roadmap of a nutrition program for myself to, to really avoid certain certain foods, mostly saturated fatty acids. Triglycerides require a low saturated fatty acid diet. I have to watch the type of carbohydrates. Complex carbohydrates are good. Simple ones are not good. The simple carbohydrates are gluten, flour, right? Snicker bars, the stuff we love. So do you um, do you use or have you ever used a continuous glucose monitor? I have. So interesting story. I, w- I was noticing that after certain meals, I, w- I would feel funny. My head would feel funny. So I said, let me just take my blood pressure. So I took my blood pressure after eating sushi. And my blood pressure went to 160 over 100. Normally, it's 120 over 70. Yeah. And I couldn't understand why. So I put on a glucose monitor and I looked at my sugar before I had the sushi it was normal, 60, 70, 80. After the sushi went to 274. Sugar is very inflammatory. And inflammation occurs when you have uh, an acute reaction in a blood vessel wall where the blood vessel gets constricted because it gets inflamed and your blood pressure rises. So I changed the way I was eating. And then I found out sushi, you know, is sugar. They take this white rice, mix it with sugar to make it sticky. So you're eating pure sugar with sushi. And most people don't know that. They think, oh, I'm sushi, it's healthy. So the continuous glucose monitor helped me figure out that food. So I need to avoid simple sugars, com- you know, simple carbohydrates, saturated fats. And yeah, I, 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 I'm interested in the... Uh, the data, and I uh, just rely just a personal uh, experience is I think you know checking your glucose level every so often is just a snapshot in time, right? And it's it's I guess it's helpful, but I'm sort of interested in the data that you'd get from a, a continuous glucose monitor because I don't know this, but I probably could have said the same story you just said, which is sometimes after eating I feel different. And sometimes I feel positive and sometimes I feel negative, but I don't really have cause and effect on it. You know, it's, it's interesting you said that. What we're actually doing is we're gathering all this data. Uh, we have about 1,000 people already, actually 500, 500 people already who have these glucose monitors. 
And we're also using our operating system to, to have other people use these glucose monitors. We're collecting all the data in what's called a data lake. It's like a lake of just data. That data goes into a medical article that we're populating on a daily basis. It's a live medical article before it used to take years to publish the paper. Now we're doing it in, in months, in weeks. And all this is being populated. And the goal is to make a digital twin of you, to make a virtual you, another Pete Worrell next to you, but digital. And now we can start experimenting on the digital you. So that's called digital twin technology. This way you can get new therapies approved through the FDA in, in six months instead of 15 years, because that's how long it's taken now, 17 years to get things done. So the data is incredible what we're finding. So now after publishing this data, now we're going to know like that you cannot eat these foods because it's personalized to you, Peter. Certain foods are personalized. So it's personalized predictive medicine. And one of the things we're also looking at in Fountain is, our, is a, a, a well care insurance, insurance that treats the person when they're well and also their sick, sick care as well. But if I can pay for all these tests that we're doing across the universe, democratize this and have it available yeah. to everybody, we're really changing, we're changing healthcare. And that's what we're really doing with Fountain Life. The goal is to change healthcare. We'll have our members of our higher uh, programs. But we'll also be able to have the, you know, the way to, to fix the population using some of these newer techniques. So I've um, asked you about chapters and you've skillfully mostly evaded my questions about chapters. And that's well done. Most, most people aren't unable to do that. Um, I understand the chapter we're in now, which is the Fountain Life chapter, where we're um, changing uh, sick care to well care. And, and there's a lot of mission driven purpose, very intentional about that. What do you think comes next for George? Next is to prove everything I'm saying in a scientific paper. Like I did in those papers long ago. Now I'm going to publish papers to, to do what we're doing to show we can prevent heart attacks, prevent cancer, prevent strokes, prevent dementia. We're changing history. Medicine, if you look at the tools that we use in medicine today, a stethoscope, a reflex hammer, an otoscope, these were all done in 1800s. And doctors are still yeah. using these. And, and I used to teach the physical diagnosis course at Columbia uh, and, and teach the, the medical students. And, and I loved it. I loved teaching. I was The person who taught me taught me how to diagnose with my fingers. I didn't need a fancy MRI, but now we can't compete with these new technologies looking at computer learning, machine learning, or AI, artificial intelligence. We can't compete with that. So for me, I would want to publish a paper saying we cured coronary artery disease. No more heart attacks. I believe no one should have a heart attack today with this new technology. Not one person should have an MI today. Um who are who was born right now? I mean, obviously, some people have disease already, and we didn't pick it up. But the early, you know, starting treating people and evaluating people early today, no one should have a heart attack. Cancer could be reduced. We now know certain foods cause cancer. Certain toxic environments cause cancers. If you have a gene, you realize that your genetics is only responsible for twenty five percent of cancers. Seventy five percent environmental. 
So, so, so the movement from sick care to healthcare, the movement from Senogenics to Fountain, the making radical positive changes in your patients and clients' lives, all good. But still, you would strive to, my words, uh, prove to the traditional medical community using, I don't know, like a double-blind, randomly controlled experiment that's hard science, that what you're advocating actually works even in their domain. That's hard to do with us because the the people with us don't want to wait 15 years for that double-blind, randomized clinical trial. That's right. why what we're doing is digital twin technology. Based on this data like and, and setting up digital twins, we can now do these double-blind trials on the digital twin. Right. So we get the answer right. quicker. For me, right. I'm trying everything on myself. Because you asked me the question, George, did you try it? Yeah. And if I would say, Pete, you know what? I, I, I'm going to, but I didn't try it. But you're telling me it's really good. Did you do it? Yeah. Well, I remember when I was training, uh, I, there was a gastroenterologist, and he was talking to me about nutrition. He was about 300 pounds. He had a ketchup stain on one collar, a mustard stain yeah. on another collar. And yeah. I was like, he's telling me about nutrition? You have to walk the walk. Everything that I preach, I already do myself. I walk the walk. So I did all this stuff. It was boot camp of being poked and prodded for three days. And now I can say I survived. I'm alive. I took the red eye back last night at 10 p.m. in Costa Rica, which is 12 o'clock New York time. I got off the plane at 5 a.m. Uh, here we are. And, and here we are. So, <laughs> so George, uh, where can listeners learn more about Fountain Life if they're interested in exploring more about some of the topics we just talked about? So currently we have a center in, in Naples, Florida, and a center in Westchester County, New York. We're near uh, complete with the center in uh, t- Texas, near Dallas, and Orlando, Florida, and Santa Monica, California. They can go to, uh, we have a website, fountainlife.com. And I guess your listeners, you can send them some information, you know, for our centers that they can go. If yeah. if, if they, if you refer them to, to me directly, I can spearhead it and get some of your special clients in quicker. We right now have a waiting list of a thousand patients to wait to see my team here in Westchester and Naples. And we're booked up until December, but, but I have slots open for, for, uh, the, the Bigelow Pete Worrell brigade. <laughs> so, so we will definitely include uh, a link in our, uh, in our introduction so that listeners can explore fountain life, uh, which, uh, as you know, Corrine and my wife, Corrine and I have done for several years now in full disclosure. Uh, we are also, uh, some of the founding stockholders of fountain life and also of Felton health insurance, uh, very nominal, very modest stockholders, but that we we walk the talk. Uh, George, I want to thank you wait, so much for being with us. Before we, yeah, we do yeah. Now that you and Karina have been on the program, have you noticed? I mean, I'm looking at you now. You look young. You look healthy. Have you noticed any changes in your health, in your body, or your mind? Well, I think the most. Uh, 
One of the most incredible things about embarking on this kind of a dialogue with someone who's an expert like you, you know, it might mean that we have longer lives. I'm sure it means we have longer health span. But the most amazing thing about that to me is not that. It's how it changes your mindset today and gives you an unfair advantage in your day-to-day life, your professional life, and your personal life, because thinking about health span out there changes your today. Have I noticed some changes? Yes, absolutely I have. And I've not only noticed the changes, but as you know, I am professionally skeptical about my own uh, my own uh, confirmation bias. And so I keep a journal of the things I notice. And I have ever since I've started with Fountain. And yeah, I also have uh, data from things like True Age and others that show me unequivocally how uh, my health and my life has been improved. So, yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm a convert for sure. I think that the other thing that is interesting is that as you and I have worked together, we have also varied some treatments for me, and so I can actually see. I actually saw in my um, the way I felt every day before I actually had the blood test that confirmed it, uh, that I was uh, deficient in some hormones in some areas that you and I were purposely trying to see what would, how would I feel if we did this? How would I feel if we did that? So I think not only do I have the um, personal observation in the form of a written journal, I also have the data from the tests that you've helped us put together. And then in addition, I have that data longitudinally over time. And candidly, that's why I wanted to get started very quickly with this program, because I first wanted a baseline. And from the baseline, then we can take action to see where to go from there. So that was super important to me. And that's only one journey you've really been through. There's about nine other journeys. Since, since I saw you a few months ago, we have another age test called glycan age. So glycan age measures your immune system, your immune age. It turns out that as we age, our immune system changes. And if we can keep our immune system high, we're better off. Do you know there's a programmed destruction of your immune system at age 17 in everybody? The thymus gland in the upper chest area turns into fat, which makes your lymphocytes. And it stops at age 17. We can now regenerate the thymus gland and continue that functioning so your immune age stays high. So now we can measure that in you by a new test called glycan age. It's similar to true age that measures your biological or inside age. This measures your immune age or eye age. Then we can try some new supplements like rapamycin or metformin or DHEA. These are new supplements that have been written about that keep you younger, but now we're actually testing it and getting data prove it and see if it actually works. So these are all new journeys that you're about to embark on. So I guess the next podcast would be uh, after you complete four or five journeys and you can talk about it. Yeah, actually, um, I I was just going to go there. I think look, today is uh, Thursday, July 14th that we're recording this. George and I are both recording it from our, happen to be from our homes. Uh, I think we ought to touch base again in uh, 92, 180 days and um, talk about what are the next journey journeys. And between now and then, you and I can identify what would be the topics for the next podcast, if that makes sense to you. It would. A lot of, a lot, a lot of times, I, I like to focus in on, on the patient. I would say, Peter, you know, what are your goals now? <clears throat> yeah. 
You had your initial goals. Did you achieve them? What are the new goals going forward? Some of the goals yeah. we find out through the test results, and they may change after we do the test results. We may find out you have a lesion somewhere, or we may find out that your bones are getting softer. Your goal may be, I want stronger bones. I want more muscle. I, I want to prevent aging, reduce frailty. Everybody wants to reduce disease. We know that. But there's certain things that may be pressing. Well, George, I want to thank you so much for generously spending time with me today. I know that the people who listen to this are going to get a lot of positive uh, impact from it. They'll be able to, to explore Fountain Life. And as George suggested, if you are friends of Pete and you are super interested in this, you can talk to me personally and I will uh, facilitate your introduction to George. And uh, enjoy the rest of the week, George. And uh, we'll talk again in three to six months. Excellent. And, I, and it's not just George doing this. I have a whole team of, of other physicians with me and, and, and ancillary staff who are amazing. Well said. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. We believe that entrepreneur owner managers are the most powerful pro-social and pro-economic force on the planet. And it's for that reason that we dedicate our firm Bigelow to working exclusively with them. At Positive Enterprise Value, we freely share our learning so that you can absorb from the experiences of other private business owners with skin in the game, just like you. Bigelow is widely regarded as the M&A advisor that deals exclusively with high-performing entrepreneur owner managers. Our scrappy independent boutique firm only offers one service, that is to help build and someday capture enterprise value. You can find all of the episodes on this podcast on Bigelow's website, which is BigelowLLC.com.